1: VAR has changed the way we watch the game, play the game, referee the game, and talk about the game. Some are struggling to adjust or adapt or even evolve. VAR was intended to fix clear and obvious mistakes, but we all have a different definition of what clear and obvious is. The VAR genie is out of the bottle and there is no putting it back in, even if you wish we could. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless and welcome the State of the Union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, We'll be talking the gift that keeps on giving, yes, VAR. In our uh, Mossy Makes the Case segment, Mossy will be talking Bayern Munich's legendary itchy trigger finger, and it's claiming yet another victim. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking Pulisic and pizza. In our Back 3, we'll talk MLS Cup and the U-17s and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday morning?
2: I am good. It's good to have you back in L.A.
1: Well, you know, you teased it in that I was uh, on the road last week and I hadn't seen the, uh, the new and improved and continuing to improve set. And it is it is gorgeous. It is sleek. It is clean. It is minimalist at this point. Not necessarily by design. We keep adding more and more knickknacks, as you'll see behind us. But I'm liking it. Uh, we have a little different camera angles now. It's, uh, it'll take some adjusting, but I'm a professional. I will muddle through. Anything uh,
2: interesting happening in your life, Mossy? Uh, no, uh, I see you've already decorated your half of it. Uh, I have not decorated mine. Rest assured, there's a Chelsea scarf here, but that is not <laughs> mine. That was placed there by our producer, Alex Dow. Yeah,
1: we're gonna have to get some more stuff. I have uh, some books over there that uh, I may or may not have read, uh, and some scarves and all that kind of stuff. I got some a lot more Americana coming, so don't worry. There's gonna be as if there wasn't enough red, white, and blue uh, yet. We're gonna uh, we're gonna uh, deck it out. Do anything interesting this weekend, Mossy? No,
2: not really. Just watched a lot of sports uh, yesterday. What'd you to, watch? Uh, are,
1: are your Wolverines still in the uh, American football season, the college football season, the uh, you know the the, the uh, these student athletes that are uh, you know studying, but also augmenting their uh, their their studies with experiential types of things uh, by playing uh, sports. Alexi, I'm starting to get ideas about uh, uh, about your Wolverines. Over these this is you. I thought you wrote off this season. Harbaugh
2: out. Uh, the Wolverines are no good. Uh, we're just going to rely on our graduation rate. Now Now two conference losses means we're probably out of any consideration for anything but uh what do you mean that would mean like a final four that's that's lofty type of thing correct okay you're not looking at that no okay Uh, but we did find ourselves in that second half defeat to Penn State we've played very well since then big game against uh, Michigan State interstate rival yes then uh Indiana after that and then the big one Ohio State oh yes and there there is already a debate in the Michigan message boards if we were to run the table the rest of the way finish 10 and 2 with a win over Ohio State but not win any big 10 titles national titles reach the playoffs would that constitute a successful season would that silence the hardball critics or he still wouldn't have anything actually to show for it Uh,
1: well i don't know where where you come down on it but uh ohio state the buckeyes right of uh, ohio state the great state of ohio they are your your biggest rival right so if you were to beat your biggest rival i think that that would carry some some hefty juice, wouldn't it? To have bragging rights, even though you might not. not, Now, if they went on to the Final Four and then won a a national championship, that might be a little, take a little bit off it.
2: No, it would be a positive for sure because that Ohio State thing has become such a noose around Harbaugh's neck. But uh, it wouldn't be like the ultimate silencing of the critics because they'd still have over him that he hasn't actually won anything at Michigan. Like I said, a Big Ten title, national title. So he'd still have things he'd have to take care of uh, in the future to silence everybody. Uh,
1: You know who cares about this? Nobody. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll move on. But good luck to your uh, Wolverines as they go forward and try to uh, beat their biggest rival and, and not win anything in terms of trophies or anything like that. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. A lot of stuff going on in the, uh, in the world of soccer on and off the field. We're going to try to get to as much of it as we possibly can. Uh, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week we kick the pot off with... Alexi Lawless' State of the Union. Yes, it's my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective, and this week, it goes a little something like this. Over the last few years, VAR has crashed into soccer like an asteroid. And like an asteroid, it's dramatically altered the game's ecosystem and threatened to drive some into extinction. VAR has changed the way we watch the game, play the game, referee the game, and talk about the game. Some are struggling to adjust, or adapt, or even evolve. Any given week we can find players, coaches, fans, and pundits apoplectic and complaining about the way in which technology is ruining the beautiful game. Offside calls seem to elicit a special kind of consternation as we now find ourselves debating the accuracy and validity of the placement of lines and armpits and cameras on a TV screen and judging incidents that involve millimeters and microscopic degrees of separation. VAR was intended to fix clear and obvious mistakes, but We all have a different definition of what clear and obvious is. For a law like Offside that has always involved drawing a line of demarcation, the decision relative to that drawn line is not subjective, no matter how close it is. You are either on or off based on that line. It's clear and obvious. You can't be a little pregnant. And if VAR isn't there to draw that line, you can bet that the TV broadcast will, as will everyone watching. And we'll be right back where we started frustrated and angry as to why we're not, quote, getting the calls right, even though we have the technology to do so. The VAR genie is out of the bottle, and there is no putting it back in, even if you wish we could. But with or without VAR, someone is always going to have to decide where to draw the line. All right, Mossy, there is my uh, State of the Union for today. Uh, Evergreen VAR, it seems. Um, And oftentimes this emanates out of England because England Sucks up so much uh, oxygen and energy from the soccer world out there, and the the consternation that I mentioned in the State of the Union. A lot of it, once again, happened this week. It bubbled over. You have fans and coaches and players and and pundits, especially, just just beyond you know, uh, c- consolation. And they're they're going to walk away from the game. And this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And I can't believe this has happened. And all that kind of stuff. Uh, what are your thoughts? Because you know the uh, the Liverpool game, the Chelsea game. It just seemed each and every game. The story wasn't about the goals or who won or lost, but it was about these things that turned on VAR.
2: Uh, You're right, offsides has clearly become the most contentious aspect of VAR. People are not buying into the black and white nature of it the same way they do for goal line technology, uh, the reaction of Liverpool fans at two different plays, I think, illustrates that. Last season, Liverpool lost a game 2-1 to Man City at the Etihad, in which they had a shot that, to the naked eye, looked like it was a goal. But goal line technology said no, because 12 millimeters of the ball didn't cross the line. And in the 10 months since, Liverpool fans have bemoaned the fact that they came so close to essentially winning the title. But very few have argued it should have been a goal. If goal line technology said no, then it wasn't. And you contrast that with the reaction to Roberto Firmino's disallowed goal for offside against Aston Villa, it's completely different. People just aren't buying into it with offsides so is it me and i'm just spitballing here but the frustration
1: and the mind-blowing type of reaction that we are seeing as i said it's emanating from england maybe maybe var and and i'm just as i said i'm just spitballing here but maybe var is too complicated for the english maybe (laughs) they can't handle it or understand it because well you know we, we're further along the line uh, as are other countries and, and cultures, but it doesn't seem to be having the uh, the impact and the effect and the negative type of reaction in other leagues and other countries. And if everybody else seems to be able to figure it out, and it's not without controversy, and we never said it was going to be without controversy. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I worried that it was going to take some of that, uh, that debate and that opinion and that controversy out, it, in a certain way, it's just prolonged it or extended it or added a new bout of controversy going uh, going on. So why
2: is it that the English can't figure this out? Great question. You know, I've heard a lot of English people say, look, I-, I had an open mind about it. I gave it time. But now, if they haven't fixed it by now, and it's like we're like 10 rounds into the first season ever of it, and they act like it's, it's been around for five years. But yeah, I think we have to distinguish between Two different issues. Uh, even with VAR, there are still some offside decisions where I look at the replay and I don't see it. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem to me like any part of the attacking players ahead of the defender. So there we're still arguing the underlying premise of the call. But the much more common occurrence and what I think you're alluding to is uh, these plays... Uh, in which you look at the replay and, okay, he is a smidge off sides. But there are people that will argue that if it's close enough that they should let it go. And I know you have a lot of issues with that argument. It's it's your whole little pregnant because
1: line. Because in, in doing that, you are still drawing a line. It's just your line. So everybody at some point has to draw a line. So – it w- <laughs> Is there? Do you envision a possibility, be it in England or any place else, where they do put the genie back in the bottle, where they say, we tried it, it didn't work, we want our beautiful
2: game, quote-unquote, our beautiful game back, and they go back to it, back to what it was. Getting once. rid of VAR yeah, altogether? No, VAR. no. I no. think in the year 2019, being against... Any form of video replay is just an unserious opinion to have. I mean, the fact that we have the technology now, where if a Maradona hand of God goal is scored, and you know, I reference, I know that goal has taken on kind of a mythical sure. quality. But generally speaking, you don't want people punching the ball into the back of the net. <laughs> yes. And the fact that Expert we, now, opinion yeah, right we there. now have the technology, where <laughs> within 30 seconds of the ball hitting the back of the net, somebody upstairs could buzz the referee down and say, "Look, you missed that. The guy just punched the ball in the back of the net," and we could eliminate a farcical mistake like that. To not want that is ridiculous. So that we The game needs some form of video replay. Every sport has it. The question becomes how much. You know, every sport that has video replay, there are limits in the NFL, how many challenges you get. Certain types of plays can't be reviewed. So there's an acknowledgement that we don't want this to intrude too much in the game it's a tool to have but uh so that's where soccer is at that point of figuring out how much var is is too much and exactly how to use it but it's not going away altogether. It's,
1: uh, okay and and with regards to the line placement just so everybody understands especially when it comes to these graphics that we see uh oftentimes mostly uh when it comes from europe a lot of that is relative to the number of cameras that they have so for example when you're watching a major league soccer game because uh just the reality of the situation is that we don't have as many cameras as other places we're not able to do those lines but keep in mind you can have a thousand cameras at a game but ultimately somebody has to set up those cameras guess who sets it up mossy human beings okay so human beings are going to set up those cameras that are then going to give you the the uh you know the technology to go in there and to, and are going to spit out a yes no type of scenario so we can always argue about how, yes, but the line was off or whatever. It can go all the way back to, well, the person, the human being that put that camera up didn't quite do it in the exact same place that they, that they should be or it's a millimeter off and stuff, uh, stuff like that. So at some point, no matter how reliant we are on technology, It is only as good as the human beings behind that technology.
2: And you mentioned how this whole concept of clear and obvious can create its own set of problems. Mm -hmm. I think we saw that in the LAFC LA Galaxy playoff game. We should talk about that second LAFC goal. Um, Very few people are arguing that Brian Rodriguez wasn't offsides on that play, but a lot of people felt like it was close enough and since the original call on the field was a goal that they had no issue with VAR not overturning that. I have to say I'm not a fan of these millimetric offsides calls. We've argued about mm-hmm. that. But that play, I saw it from a lot of different angles, a lot of different frames, and even the most generous one from an LAFC perspective, to me still met a threshold that it needed to have been called offsides. What did you make of that decision? And also the reaction to it? How many people didn't seem to have a problem that that goal stood? All right, so run me
1: through the play again, just so, just so our, our listeners understand what you're okay, talking so
2: about. Okay, so in the LAFC, LA Galaxy playoff game, LAFC scored a goal in the buildup to it. LAFC player received the ball, looked like in an offside position. He squared it to Vela to score the goal. And when you went back and looked at it, he was... A smidge ahead. Again, depending on what angle, what frame you looked at, it varies how far mm-hmm. ahead he was. But I think everybody acknowledged that there was a, a, at least a smidge of an offsides there. But if you look at it in an angle where it, it seems pretty close, and a lot of people concluded that because the original call in the field was a goal, that VAR was right not to overturn that. Uh, does that logic hold up with you at all? Yeah, I mean the
1: clear and obvious thing is is amazing because from the very first day, I remember talking to Howard Webb about this, and you know they would they would rail and and say clear and obvious only clear and obvious only clear and obvious and what they weren't saying and you know what the uh, the, the dirty little secret is is that howard webb's definition of clear and obvious can be different than your clear uh, clear and obvious or my clear and obvious now when it comes to offside and, and referees whether it's howard or anybody else will tell you that it it is not a subjective call because you are either on or you're off if somebody dove or if, or if it was a foul or something like that, that is all subjective, okay? We can watch it a million different times. We can watch it from a million different angles. But if the video, and once again, we're using humans, okay? But if that video is telling you whether you are looking at it as the center referee going over and looking at a screen or whether it's telling the people upstairs, obviously center referee has to make the ultimate decision. If it is telling you In where you put those lines, that it is offside, that is not a subjective type of determination that you are making right there. So once again, you, you, you can't be a little pregnant.
2: And it's interesting, I think a lot of Americans were weaned on video replay from watching the NFL Mm -hmm. all these years, and in the NFL, the original call really governs the way a play is reviewed. It has to be irrefutable evidence to overturn it, and NFL officials really take that to heart. They don't like overturning calls, so it has to be absolutely black and white that the call was wrong. And in European soccer, it doesn't seem to be that way. Uh, The original call doesn't seem to matter that much. VAR is a fresh look at it, and even if the original call was one way, after looking at the replay, if you slightly lean the other way, they go that other way and they overturn it. And I think that's causing some consternation well, also. Well, first off, I think
1: it gives them an out, referees, center referees. It gives them an out because these faceless, I mean, I, I know in their names and we see our little picture stuff, but for the most part, these are people in a room, either on the premises or at a, a headquarters somewhere. And they are faceless. And this gives them someone to blame. Well, they say it up there and I've looked at it. And because and, I've talked to referees, uh, VAR for them is an incredible tool and a useful and helpful one because in the past it was all on them. And I think they enjoy the fact uh, that it's not there. Now, once again, though, it goes back to, if you are overturning a subjective call that you made in the moment, I think that's a little different than if the AR missed a, an offsides or was or wasn't offside and it was called on the field and you're overturning it because you have a video, video evidence that's not subjective because the, and I'm not saying that the line placement isn't subjective, but ultimately, relative to that line, whether you agree with the line or not, is not subjective. That's much easier, I think, for the ego and the the hubris that, that referees, that human beings have in that moment to be able to say, fine, we got it wrong on the uh, field, but we have the technology to show us immediately. It's another thing when it's a subjective thing. But keep in mind, while they're checking all the time, a review is only supposed to happen when somebody upstairs feels that the referee on the field has made a clear and obvious uh, mistake. And once again, it gets back to what clear, uh, clear and obvious uh, you know ultimately is, and everybody's different uh, definition. I like you. I don't see it changing. It'll be tweaked. Uh, and I think even within leagues, within within countries and cultures, they will they will view it differently. I think they will implement it differently, not completely differently, because we all kind of have to be to a certain extent, playing the same game and the same laws out there. But this is this is, not going, this is not going away. It'll be really interesting, as you said, because it is such early days in England. A year from now, what the general consensus is about VAR, how it has been tweaked or how it has just been improved or how just people have learned to accept it. I, I bet you we're going to talk about VAR again. Uh, yep. and uh, you know it's go- a lot of it's going to be driven by the English that obviously just can't comprehend or uh, understand the complexities involved in VAR maybe they're gonna have to go back to the old beautiful game that they have <laughs> and it's just it's just too complex for them I mean, <laughs> I'm just kidding I love you it's all it's all good all, all my uh, all my English friends Hello, people. Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out. Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now back to the show. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's that time again.
2: Uh, time for Mossy Makes the Case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? My case is that the Super Club culture has claimed another victim. Nico Kovac is out at Bayern. With all due respect to Marco Giampaolo, who was sacked by AC Milan a few weeks ago, this is the first big coaching shoe to drop this season. Kovac was fired following a 5-1 defeat to Frankfurt, Bayern's worst league loss since 2009. And look, there's no denying how embarrassing that performance was this weekend. I'm not here to tell you that Nico Kovac is the greatest coach ever. You can definitely argue that he wasn't up to that job. But I do think this is another opportunity to reflect on the implications of this so-called super club era. We now live in a world in which a manager can take over a club win a league and Cup double his first season, come out of that campaign with no currency, and got sacked early the next season, despite the fact that Bayern have three wins out of three in the Champions League, including a 7-2 thrashing of Tottenham, and they went into this weekend one point out of first place in the Bundesliga. Kovac's situation is particularly interesting because he inherited a Bayern team very much in transition. Bayern have Super Club pedigree and Super Club ambitions, but they haven't spent like a Super Club lately. They made one big signing paying the eighty million euro buyout clause for Lucas Hernandez. But other than that, they've rolled their eyes at the way English clubs operate and PSG and Barcelona and Real Madrid and made a big point of saying we're not gonna be like that. Instead, they focus on loans and free transfers and finding bargains in the market, and they've ended up with a squad that in my opinion, by Bayern Munich standards, is short on quality and quantity. So Kovac is gone. We'll see who they bring in to replace him. But whoever it is, he better be given a team good enough to meet these expectations that, as we were reminded again this weekend, for a club of Bayern's stature, are higher than they've ever been before.
1: Interesting. Interesting, Mossy. Uh, I What was interesting to me is that I think you started off by mentioning AC Milan. That you would even put AC Milan at this point into the Super Club status is, in and it of itself, a statement because... They have not been that in terms of performance for a number of years. However, in terms of perception, because of the cachet that they built up over the decades, you still put them in that, uh, in that league. And that, my friend, is why this move by Bayern Munich is the absolute right move. This is Bayern Munich? Nobody cares about what the realities on the ground are. Okay, for Niko Kovac or anybody else, you come in and you are expected to win. If you are, if you come in, and you have one hand behind uh, behind the back. It's your fault. Don't take the job then. Okay, uh, you know going in what the situation is. This is what super clubs do. They make a change when it's not going well, when it's not living up to expectations. Is it fair? Soccer isn't fair and life isn't fair. And the coach, being a coach of a super club is definitely at times not fair. But once again, you go in with wi- your eyes wide open. And for you or anybody else to come come, and say that, no, you need to be given time and there needs to be patience and they're building something and, oh, he doesn't have enough good players at his disposal. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. The Bayern Munich fans don't care. Certainly the leadership when it comes to Bayern Munich uh, don't care. Are are they Pollyanna? Are they living in a fantasy world? Are they living in the past given the talent? And I think you may be suggesting that the talent it uh, doesn't matter who you are isn't able to isn't able to uh to live up to these expectations. Well what if somebody comes in, whether it's, you know, <laughs> uh, Acus, uh or or whoever it ends up being, right, uh right, uh, what was his name? You Pinkus. We've seen him, you know, come to the rescue. He's like he, you know he's like, he's like uh Al Pacino in uh The Godfather Three maybe or that just when I just when I think I'm out they pull me back in <laughs> He can't leave. So this, my friend, to to end this, at least for my part right now, this is exactly what they needed to do. This is what super clubs do. This is what I want super clubs to do.
2: And it's funny. I'm not the biggest Nico Kovac fan. There are some parallels to David Moyes. It's one thing to get a club like Frankfurt to punch above its weight, but it's a whole different challenge managing a big club. But I do think it's worth examining the dynamic at Bayern Munich right now. You have a front office that's very difficult to deal with. Uh, we saw in every game, there was always that shot in the stands of Rummenigge and Uli Hone sitting there, and it felt like almost looking down on Kovac. And you have a dressing room that's very difficult to deal with. Frankly, it kind of reminds me of the U.S. women's national team, the Players exert a lot of power. They don't seem to be happy with any manager. You have these veterans that are struggling to come to grips with the fact that they're not that good anymore. Last season, he had to deal with Robin and Ribery and Hummels. Okay, those guys are gone, but you still have Muller and Boateng and Neuer, and you know those guys ran out Carlo Ancelotti, a manager who won three Champions League titles. They weren't that thrilled with Pep by the end there. So, what chance did Nico Kovac have?
1: Well, we all know that you can't fire the whole team, uh, and it's so it's much easier to fire a coach. Over the last year, we've talked at different times, and I think I've. Pose the question to you, does Neil Kovac make it to the end of the year? So this is always, I never got the feeling that this was, this is our guy. And, you know, when we're talking about super clubs or teams that have been super clubs in the past, despite what they're doing right now, a lot of, uh, and I mentioned AC Milan, but you could also look at Manchester United with what's going on right now. The fact that they have continued on with Ole, uh, uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, is amazing to me that they have (laughs) given him this time and had this type of patience because that leeway
2: and that leniency is not the hallmark of a super club. Right, a couple of personnel things on Bayern. Most super clubs, have a backup at every position. Sometimes they have more than that. They have too many players in a squad that's unwieldy, but at the very least, you have a backup at every position. Bayern tried to get away with less than that in the defensive third because they had these versatile players that can cover multiple positions. Pavard can play as a right back and a center back. Lucas Hernandez can play as a left back and a center back. Kimmick can play as a right back in the midfield in a pinch, even as a center back, which is where he played under Pep. Javi Martinez, David Alaba can play multiple positions, but all that mixing and matching also meant there was very little continuity at the back from week to week, and also you couldn't Afford any injuries, and what happened? Nicolas Sula is out for the season, probably. Lucas Hernandez is out for a while. Now they're incredibly thin back there. Alfonso Davies Look, starting is starting a Canadian, games. At they're left starting Canadians. Yeah, all right, enough said. Uh, Jerome Boateng was supposed no. to have any no, I'm role this the season. The Canadians. I'm <laughs> <to> the English. <laughs> I'm going through it all. Jerome Boateng <laughs> wasn't supposed to have any role this season. Is now starting games in the center of defense. He got himself sent off this weekend against Frankfurt, so he's suspended for the classic go yep. next week. So I don't know what kind of backline they're going to try out for that game. So that's an issue. And the other one I have to say is Coutinho, who got off to an incredible encouraging start there, kind of teased us all into thinking that this season might be something of a rebirth for him. But the last five, six games have been terrible. And Kovac rejigged the whole formation to, to, for him to play as a number 10 and have all this freedom and have everything run through him. And he just hasn't justified that the last few games. So that, that's been a big problem. The only too.
1: man that has done his job this season is Lewandowski. That's what he does. He's He scores goals. What do we get now? How many how many games in a row?
2: Oh, yeah. uh, scored in all 10 rounds all 10. this season. Incredible. Jeez.
1: In Incredible. He just must be saying, whatever. Bring on the next guy.
2: Now, uh, let me make a point about Jose Mourinho. This okay. was going to be the Mossy makes the case this week prior to the Bayern news breaking. And let me just say, I think Allegri is the favorite for Bayern. I think he's the big prize in the coaching market right now. So really? he'll get the first call. Okay. Uh, but Jose Mourinho's name has been floated. And listen, here's where we are in Jose Mourinho. It's been 11 months since he got sacked. I think the media feels like he's paid his penance. And whatever his faults, this is a manager that's won 25 trophies, two Champions League crowns, league titles in four different countries, and the media can't believe that he's out on the cold while some of the most plum jobs in Europe are held by the likes of Unai Emery and Thomas Tuchel and until yesterday Nico Kovac and Maurizio Sarri and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer oh, and Lucien Favre oh, and you. so there's this effort to get Mourinho back in there and so we've now thrown out any notion of what's a quote-unquote good fit for him any big club where the coach is wobbly the media is now pushing Mourinho I've even heard in the last few weeks clubs like Dortmund and Arsenal which you would have never associated with Mourinho before and we're seeing it now with Bayern now I'll say I think Bayern. Is less far fetched than either Dortmund or Arsenal because they already have this image of being. Uh arrogant and obnoxious so there's not really a clean image there for him to tarnish and they're all about like ruthless winning they don't seem as hung up on style of play as some of the other super clubs so I don't think it's crazy but the other argument would be I just talked about it being a combustible dressing room you're going to throw Jose Mourinho into that mix and also Mourinho is going to want a lot of power over transfers and Bayern are structured in such a way where he wouldn't have that so what do you think Jose Mourinho at Bayern does that make any love sense it. to you? <laughs> love it
1: please bring it on Oh, they're good. They're, they're good. I love it uh, or Jesse Marsh, but you know, whatever, either, either one of them. I mean, if you, if you want to win and most importantly, if you want to give me content, either one of those are good. I'm, I'm, I'm good with all of those, but I, you, you know, to finish this, uh, this off, you hit on, um, ruthlessness and that is speaking of hallmarks of these big clubs, these super clubs. That is absolutely the word that permeates everything that they do. There's no sentimentality. While there is a, a emotion and passion and personal feeling, you either get the job done or you will, you will be asked to leave, either nicely or not so nicely, and they will get somebody else in there that will get the job. And that's what these teams are about. That's what they were founded on. That's what they promise. And more often than not, that's what they deliver. And when they're not delivering on that promise, you need to have the people in place that will be ruthless and say, no, this isn't good enough. And that's what your fans want. They want you to recognize that this isn't good enough for the likes of Bayern Munich. And maybe there is an arrogance. I call it a beautiful arrogance. But that's what you want from these clubs. Manchester United obviously doesn't care. Okay. They think this is good enough. But it's not. If you really are Manchester United, or you you risk, and they're right there on the precipice right now, of becoming that AC Milan. I love AC Milan. I love what they were, but they are not that anymore. They are certainly not a super club. There is only one super club in Italy right now, and that is Juventus, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, but... This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun to see, you know, for those of us uh, over here at Fox, like you and I, that uh, that cover the Bundesliga, how that gives us plenty to talk about uh, how it, who and how it changes the fortunes, because this has happened in the past. They have made changes mid-season and it has worked like a charm. And at the end, they were sitting, standing, whatever you want to say, where they always are, which is at the top of the league. And we'll see if this change uh, has the desired effect in that positive way going forward. Ask Alexi all right it's time for ask Alexi use that hashtag ask Alexi out there on all the uh, social media platforms you send us comments and questions and concerns and we pick a oh two or three of them and uh, we read them on air and uh mossy what have we picked this week what do the people want to know
2: First up, at Allen underscore 634, Mm -hmm. in the long run, who do you think will have the more glorious, successful career between Pulisic and Chucky Lozano and why? This is a conversation, by the way, we had back in August. Just to give some context on what's gone on since then, Lozano scored on his Napoli debut against Juventus, got everybody excited, hasn't scored since, has really struggled. The Italian media has been all over him. The word for flop, by the way, in Italian is flop. They, (laughs) They actually didn't bother coming up with their own word for that. Pulisic, meanwhile, scored again this past weekend against Watford, Chelsea further entrenched in the top four, now six points clear of uh, Arsenal, so uh, things going well for him there. Uh, I think you liked Pulisic even back then, but I'm, I'm sure nothing's happened since then to change your no. mind.
1: <laughs> no, uh, you know, the uh, you know your fables and everything, slow and steady wins the race and all that. And uh, as you mentioned, coming out hot and heavy at the start uh, increases expectations. And sometimes it's difficult, especially for a young player, a player adjusting to a new culture, times a new language, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And so when Chucky Luzano came out, you know, incredible in the very beginning, everybody's expectations. And then when reality sets in of the day-to-day grind and the difficulties and the ball's not going where you want it to and the form and up and down and all that kind of stuff that happens, uh, then it's harder because you're coming back down from that from that high as opposed to Christian Pulisic. And by the way, this isn't by design, but it has been much, much more of a slow burn so much so that when he, when he came out, even though he played in preseason, but then didn't play. And that's not by design, as I said, either by him, certainly. And it's not by design by Frank Lampard. It's just the way that it, it has all played out. So that in and of itself, I think bodes well for Christian Pulisic. Certainly if you're doing it year by year, when we're talking in June of 2020, who will have had a better season and therefore a, a bigger impact? And therefore, to answer your question, at least in the short term, I think you're going to look at Polisic, uh, and Chucky Lozano is going to struggle. Now, long term, career-wise, all that all that kind of stuff, I think a lot of it is going to be dependent. Someone asked me the other day about, you know, is uh, has Christian Polisic uh, already surpassed Landon Donovan? I said no. Christian Pulisic hasn't done anything yet relative to Landon Donovan. Christian Pulisic hasn't even been to a World Cup yet, and so the national team part of it, which is a huge reason why Chucky Lozano is where he is, uh, I think, is going to be a huge part of that final assessment of both of these, uh, both of these players. And you know, unless something changes dramatically, if Christian Pulisic doesn't
2: get that component and that part, then I think Chucky Lozano will be ahead of him. Two Pulisic points, and I'll start there. Yeah. Uh, when Pulisic was struggling, we talked on this pod about how if you're an American, ultimately what you care about is what he does for the U.S. national team. Well, now that things are going well, you can look at that from a different perspective. Our last image of him with the U.S. national team is that debacle against Canada. Right? He's now been great for Chelsea. I don't think this is going to happen. I think the U.S. is going to win that Canada game handily this month. But if Pulisic were to play really poorly in that game and the U.S. have a terrible result, would that take all the shine off what he's doing with Chelsea? As an American, would you have a hard time getting as excited about that given that it's not translating into the no, national team. No, because I think Greg context.
1: Berhalter would take the blame. I think people would say, look, this is Christian Pulisic. He's obviously a good player. We see him every week playing at Chelsea. And I know it's not as simple as that, but that's how people are going to do it. And Greg Burhalter's job, he can talk X's, and I know we're veering into a Greg Berhalter discussion, but I think this is important relative to whether it's Christian Pulisic or Chucky Lozano. Greg Berhalter's job is to get the most out of the players. And he is not getting the most out of the players that he has right now, including Christian Pulisic. And so if Christian Pulisic comes back and stinks it up for the national team, it's going to be on Greg Berholter. I don't think it's going to be on uh, Christian Pulisic.
2: And one last Pulisic point. Uh, Pulisic devotees had to listen to everybody praise Dortmund for what an incredible piece of business mm-hmm. it was, selling Pulisic for 60 million euros and then turning that into Thorgenhazard, Hazard, Julian Brandt, and Nico Schultz, who combined cost about 70. And I've noticed... Pulisic devotees now are flipping this around because Chelsea sold Eden Hazard to Real Madrid for 100 million euros. He's gotten off to a very slow start there. Pulisic is doing what he's doing. Chelsea bought him for 60 million. So now they're arguing that this was an incredible piece of business by Chelsea and that they're actually going to come out ahead in this whole deal. Are you ready to go there yet? That this was an incredible piece of business for Chelsea.
1: I think. I mean, can't, can't both sides win in a piece of business? I know it sucks for punditry, but... <laughs> But yeah, I think ultimately, I still think that Dortmund is going to say this was an incredible piece of business.
2: But from a Chelsea fan's perspective, and perhaps we should give Alex Dowd a microphone for this, based on what he's seen so far, uh, Eden Hazard showing some early signs of maybe being past his peak and Chelsea might have sold him at just the right time or or, or perhaps, no, you attribute that just to adapting to a new country, new new reality, well, versus what Pulisic is right. doing. Uh, is there a world in which if Chelsea fans were given the choice to undo that and not have Pulisic on the team but have Eden Hazard back, they'd mm-hmm. say, no, thank you. We'd we prefer how things worked out and having a younger Pulisic who okay. still has all these years ahead of him. Alright, so two things.
1: One, no, it's never a good idea to give Alex Dowd a, a microphone. Okay, and and <laughs> And two, no, I think Chelsea fans still recognize that this was a good deal, given what this Chelsea team has become. It, it has moved on. It is concentrated on youth. I think in a strange way, and, it, and this boggles the mind, while Chelsea has been, and I still would say is one of those super clubs of the world, there is this incredible grace period that is being given to them to kind of go through. And I'm not saying they've come out the other side, but... That's why I think they would understand that, in order to be the Chelsea that they are, they think they are going to be, Hazard had had to go. So I think I think people will still recognize that that was a good deal. But to ultimately, answer your question, Alan. I still think that Christian Pulisic is going to have a a quote unquote. Glorious, more glorious, successful career than Chucky Lozano, but it, but it's all going to relate to the national team and the World Cup. And if Mexico were to do better than the the U.S. in upcoming World Cups that featured Chucky and Christian Pulisic, or God forbid, if Christian Pulisic wasn't at upcoming World Cups, then that would change completely the the way that we view both of these players.
2: All right, next question at Andy J. Munoz one. Who's your pick to fill in for Alex Morgan during her leave of absence for her pregnancy?
1: So remember this summer when Alex Morgan either didn't play or there was a reason to kind of rotate and and, uh, platoon players. We know that the great Carly Lloyd came in and played the position up, up top. In a very different way, but still with the same result in her scoring, in the team winning and doing all that kind of stuff. That is great, except that Carly Lloyd is, you know, one, if not the oldest player that we have right now. And who knows? I know while she wants to be involved next summer, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, the, uh, the new coach and everything, um, I think that they need to be looking at others. The problem is, as we mentioned, so for example, I'm leaving for uh, Columbus tomorrow for US versus Sweden. And if you look at the roster and you look at the uh, the forwards they have, we, you know, people that are usual suspects, right? So Tobin Heath who really plays on the outside. So that's not gonna, that, you, she can't really do that. I mentioned Carly Lloyd. Yes, she can certainly do that, but she is 36 years old right now, I think, yeah, uh, against, yeah, something like that. So then you have, people like Mallory Pugh uh, or Kristen Press, which are much more outside players, okay? They can play up top, and they, and we ha- and they have seen that. So then you got got someone like Jess McDonald, who, also, who is 31 years old, and I think it's just she she's not going to change the player. She is what she is. So you have some players that aren't necessarily new to the program, but certainly new. They weren't involved in the World Cup, and have, some of them haven't been around. Lynn Williams and Margaret Purse. So all of that is to say that I think in the short term, you're going to have the Carly Lloyds of the world, and it's going to be a a testing ground, but I don't think anybody is going to do what Alex Morgan is, which is why they have made a point of saying that she's not necessarily out of the Olympics next summer. Um, She's announced her pregnancy, by the way, congratulations to uh, Alex Morgan. It's wonderful news for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with soccer and while we can be selfish and want her playing and scoring goals for the u.s team it remains to be seen whether she is going to be able to be ready from a physical perspective uh certainly players have done it we just just don't know how it's going to play out uh next summer which is why we're having this conversation right now so i'll be interested to see in columbus who plays in that position but those are the names right now at least for this uh for this camp Right now, but there is nobody that approximates what uh, Alex Morgan does.
2: Uh, that is on Thursday. Yeah. U.S. On Thursday. Sweden yep. uh, on FS1. Yep. It'll be the U.S.'s first match under their new manager. I know how to pronounce his name, but I've been taking up too much airtime, so I'll let you. Really? Do it. Yes, of course. Lodko Last name. Andonovski. Andonovski.
1: And. Un- Andonovski.
2: Yes. I, I mean, think, I'm going to meet with them, so I'm going to get I think get we'll them. go with Vladko. Oh, you're, you're, definitely. He's definitely a one-name. You've kind. decided you're in a first-name basis. Oh, <laughs> no, I like it. I, when we say
1: Vladko, it's not like we're talking about anybody else, okay, <laughs> going forward. So, yeah. So, congratulations to him, by the way. Uh, he takes over, and, uh, you know, he's got a lot to live up to, given what Jill Ellis did with this team. His first order of business will be to figure out what that, well, first off, to go through qualifying for the Olympics, and provided that goes well, to figure out what that Olympic team is going to look. It was the... Um, the cause of uh, a, a, uh, the last problem, if you will, for the national team four years ago, when they bombed out in the Olympics. So I think there will be a desire, and all his comments lead me to believe that they're taking it very seriously in terms of winning medals, but he also has to recognize that he's got to blood some people and move on from this last class that won the World Cup uh, over the summer. So we, we will be meeting with Vladko. I'm really interested to see what he is all about because he comes highly recommended by... The women, at least for now, until they turn on him. And then, (laughs) as we've seen in the past, it can get very ugly very, very quickly. But the women uh, were his champions and I think helped to steer this in the direction of him. And I haven't found anybody that has anything but glowing things to say uh, about him right now. But it's easy to say glowing things when you haven't played any games yet.
2: And finally, let me just say, Alex Dowd is flirting with getting taken off Ask Alexi duty. I am embarrassed that this question okay. made its way into this the pod this famous week. is the third question. But of yes, Ask Alexi. Uh, we'll close on this uh, riveting stuff. At Chris Glenn wants to know, uh, what is your favorite pizza topping?
1: Ah, uh-huh. interesting, interesting. I've 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 been asked this question. First off, uh, you should know my pizza history. Okay, I did not grow up in a state or in a culture that was rich when it came to the history of pizza. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, in the suburbs of Detroit. So my uh, version of a good quality pizza is Little Caesars, all right? Thick, doughy, bready uh, type of pizza. That runs counter to what a lot of people's version is of the, the thin slice. So I don't like any of that. I like mine much doughier. Not like thick deep dish, Sicilian style thick. I'm just talking much more uh, processed, unnatural, unhealthy type of Little Caesars. You give me a Little Caesars pizza and I'm, I am happy because I, it's not cooked enough, which is, which is the way I like it. Anyway, so that's, that's, from, that's the base of where I am coming from when it comes to my pizza. Uh, well, what do I like on my pizza? All right, remember people, okay? Um, I don't want you showing up at my door. All right. Feel free as always to at me and send me horrible messages uh, either on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or any of the platforms out there. I will die on the hill of a pizza with mushrooms and pineapples. I've always loved it. I love the juxtaposition between those two toppings. Obviously, the uh, the sugar and the sweet of the pineapple, I think, plays off well with the, uh, with the mushroom. Now, I am fully aware that when I say that, even for the people that are driving or biking or running or walking, they may have to take a moment, pull to the side of the road, uh, just stop walking, do whatever, and take deep breaths. Because in the, in the pizza world out there of pizza connoisseurs, that is tantamount to uh sacrilege what i just said um that people like their pizza with pineapple on it is it 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 pains people that that love pizza and if you are one of those people i'm sorry the the, you know the the eyes want what the eyes want the ears want the ears want the nose wants what the nose wants the mouth and the stomach and the taste buds want what the taste buds want i just like it there mossy i have said it i expect to get Loads and loads of, well, more loads of hate mail <laughs> when it comes to uh, my pizza decision. You, when you order a pizza?
2: Yeah, uh, pretty straightforward stuff. Uh, pepperoni, cheese, uh, maybe throw in a sausage every now and then. Just
1: cheese, like a, just a straight margarita or whatever? Oh, yeah. No yeah. problem? No yeah. frills or anything like no that? No frills, nothing like that. No mushrooms or? Uh, no mushrooms, Oh, no. God. Have you ever had a pizza with pineapple on it? uh yeah I'm, I'm sure i'm sure
2: i've had at some point does it life. make
1: your stomach turn or does it make you look at me any differently
2: well not looking any differently but <laughs> yes it does make my stomach turn all right well there you
1: have it so uh let us know your favorite pizza topping and or uh pizza so and i know people have their you know pizza from new york and pizza from chicago and pizza from italy and pizza and this and that i Having played in Italy and been to Italy many times, once again, this is a much longer conversation that we often have. This is one of those road conversations that we have about how the surroundings and the situation that you are in, I think, often dictates how you assess food. And so having pizza in Italy or pasta in Italy or wine in Italy, whether it's good or not, you are going to make it that much better because of the situation. And I found that applies to Italy. I was eating pizza and I said, well, it's pizza. I can I can." I could have this pizza anywhere. And you're going to say, how dare you? And no, no, I actually <laughs> think there's a lot of truth to that. Okay, anyway, well, that's a longer conversation. Yeah, Thank you very much. What was his name? Uh, Chris Glenn for asking uh, your question there on Ask Alexia. And if you do have questions, comments, concerns, use that hashtag Ask Alexi on the uh, old social media machine out there and send us all of those. And whether it's about pizza or soccer or anything in between, let us know what you uh, have, and we will pick some more as we do each and every week. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for our back three. When we look at some big stories or games or moments from the world of soccer, what's in the back three this week, Mossy?
2: First up, MLS Cup. For Ooh, the yes. Third time in four years, it'll be Seattle against Toronto. Uh, that match will take place uh, this upcoming Sunday at CenturyLink Field. Both teams won away from home in the conference finals. Seattle defeated LAFC in a match I attended. And uh, Toronto defeated Atlanta in a match you covered for Fox. Yep. A lot to get to here, but what are your overall thoughts on this matchup?
1: My overall thoughts, I think that Seattle is and should be favorites when it comes to this game. I think that they are a uh, better team, obviously playing at home, playing in front of a sold-out 69,000. They sold out in like an hour or something like that. You know, we we, we all know that Seattle invented uh, soccer, economics, uh, and selling out. So I think that this is going to be a, a wonderful moment for the Seattle folks, I think that Toronto is just happy to be there. Greg Vanney's done a terrific job of getting a relative to you mentioned the the, the teams that went to previous and won previous MLS Cups when it comes to Toronto relative to those teams. This is a mediocre uh, TFC team. Doesn't mean they can't win, but Greg Vanny's done a, a, a really good job, and I think they even recognize that they got away with one in Atlanta. Now, the potential of a returning Josie Altador is both good and concerning because if it ain't broke, uh, are you going to try to fix it if you're Greg Vanny, And they are a very, very different team with— Josie Altidore, and you see, you have to decide: Are you better with Josie Altidore, who's coming off an injury and playing different, and, and and changes fundamentally the way that you play the game, or do you just ride this train that has gotten you there? That's going to be interesting to see. Omar Gonzalez might come back into the lineup, and then on the other side, when it comes to Seattle, I will give you my uh, my ode to Brian Schmetzer. Brian Schmetzer, you say? Who's Brian Schmetzer? Brian Schmetzer is the head coach of the Seattle Sounders. Uh, Brian Schmetzer is also the Rodney danger field, if you will, of the MLS soccer coaching world in that this is a guy, as you rightly mentioned, who has who is now going back to his third MLS Cup in four years, coaching the Sounders, uh, having won one already, now going for two. And yet time and time again, I think he is under whether he's undervalued or not, I, I don't know, but he is certainly underappreciated. Uh, you can't have that type of success and wing it. And there seems to be this idea that he is just w- winging it and has been winging it for a number of years. I think this is a man who is incredibly uncomfortable in- with who he is as a person and as a coach, understands exactly what makes him tick, uh, understand exactly what he is good at and what he is not good at, and has been playing with house money to a certain extent for a number of years, and and has parlayed it into one of the most successful coaching runs that we have seen in Major League Soccer. And so you can't, as I said, just do that and wing it. And so I think he deserves much more credit than oftentimes he is given. Big game against Toronto, coming off of a very, very big win, and a completely justified win, I think, when it comes to the way that they beat LAFC. Toronto FC knows they got away with one. Seattle didn't get away with one. They came in, and they took it right out of the hands of Bob Bradley and LAFC in their own home.
2: As I mentioned, I attended that LAFC-Seattle game with a— Fox colleague of ours, Jason Carapessi, who's a diehard LAFC fan, and walking out of the stadium, he was very upset, and I had to listen to a rant about this playoff format. We already proved we're the best team in the league, and any Uh, other country would have been the champions. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole again, (laughs) but I will say this. I'm uncomfortable with this sports media world now where it's a binary. You're either a champion or a choker. And I look at this LAFC team, in their second year of existence, they broke the MLS record for points. They played the best football I've ever seen played in MLS. They won a playoff game against the LA Galaxy. They lost in the conference finals against a very good Seattle team that was the number two seed in the conference. Yes, it's a disappointing end to the season, but I still think they can look back at this and feel incredibly good about where they are as a franchise two years in and feel like it's been overall an amazingly successful first two years of existence. Yeah, I don't think that—I haven't heard anybody say
1: that, that LAFC or anybody that is—or Atlanta, for that matter, choked. I think when—the the, the choking part of it would come if you were up by four goals and, and you pissed it away or whatever. So I don't think that, that that's the case. But they're not champions. And they're not the best team ever to uh, ever to play in MLS because you do have to be champions, in my view, in order to be looked at as the best team in MLS, uh, in MLS history. Look, either way, I think that this is, you know, from a broadcast perspective, I think people were saliv- salivating, and, and for people that don't know, what happens is each year between Fox and ESPN for the English language broadcast, we trade off and on. So last year we did the final. This year ESPN is doing the final. And from a broadcast perspective, people were salivating at the potential of an LAFC hosting an Atlanta United. Now, this is not so shabby uh, when it comes to these two teams that have been in MLS for a long time, especially in front of, as I said, 69,000 people up there in Seattle. I think it'll be a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful spectacle. I'm excited to see how this ultimately ends up. Neither one of these teams, if they win, are the greatest teams in MLS history. Neither one of these teams, if they lose, will, unless it's a ridiculous scoreline that is made up, will be looked at as choking.
2: How many celebrations is Keith Kosagin going to awkwardly insert himself into in 2019? (laughs) He was in Madrid in June. There were pictures that surfaced of him partying with the Liverpool players after that Champions League final. And then... Uh, the night of the LAFC Seattle game, he was calling a League MX game for Fox. So he somehow managed to make it to Bank of California Stadium by the end of the game. And there he was in the locker room taking pictures with all the players. It's unbelievable.
1: Well, there's this. uh, So when you do regional broadcasts, which is one thing that uh, that Keith does that a lot of uh, folks out there do, you are associated with that team so much so that at times you are considered or or accused of being homers and all that kind of stuff that's neither here nor there but one thing that that you do find out is that if the team wins you are part of that championship and part of that title so much so that you are often given a ring so maybe he is salivating at the fact of potentially having an mls cup title to add to his treasure chest of awards the
2: don king of soccer he always finds a way to insert himself into the
1: winning guy's picture Sunday on ESPN, so uh, definitely watch it. It's the culmination of what has been a really fascinating and interesting MLS season. I don't think if if you did predict this as the final, then you're lying, or uh, you're very, very lucky because not a lot of people did.
2: Next up is match day four of the Champions League this week. These are the reverse fixtures from match day three. Yes. Uh, not great games. Dortmund-Inter is probably the best of the bunch, but the interesting thing is you have a lot of big clubs that are looking to bounce back from disappointing weekend results. Barcelona fell to Levante, which has raised all sorts of questions again about Valverde, about their over-reliance on Messi, about the compatibility of that front three with Messi, Suarez, and Griezmann. Uh, they get Slavia Prague at home, so very suited to bouncing back. Real Madrid failed to capitalize on that Barcelona result. They could have leapfrogged them in the standings, but they drew nil-nil at home against Betis. They now are home to Galatasaray, which shouldn't be a problem. One interesting note there, by the way, there, there's very much a divide in the Mossy household regarding mm. these two Brazilian teenagers at Real Madrid. My father is a Vinicius guy. I am a, I'm a Rodrigo guy. And it's it's reached the point where Rodrigo started this past week and didn't play great, got subbed out for Vinicius, who then came in and added a real spark. And my dad called me right after the game in a very smarmy tone and said, hey, my guy outplayed your guy today. Really? So it, that's a thing now. Now, who are these players you're talking about again? Uh, these two teenage Brazilians on okay, Real Madrid, Vinicius Jr. and okay. Rodrigo. Jr., oh, he was all the rage okay. last season right. and had fallen off this season and, and now Rodrigo is the guy who's a merger, who? everybody's excited about. Rodrigo. Oh, Rodrigo. Yes. Okay.
1: I just wanted to make sure Because I'm, I'm pronouncing it saying. Rodrigo. I'm <laughs> Believe doing it. Yes, yes. Everybody out there. Um, I get I when when people talk to me about the uh, podcast, and it's amazing how many people come <laughs> up and ask, and they, they all want to send their regards to you and stuff like that. And then they proceed to crush you on your pronunciations <laughs> and stuff like, Not that you're not pronouncing pronouncing them correctly. It's almost That you are pronouncing them correctly (laughs) is what drives them crazy.
2: Bayern Munich, we talked about earlier, they are home to Mm Olympiacos, So uh, the post-Kovac era should begin with a win. Uh, And then PSG are home to Bruges. They lost to Dijon this past weekend in a very tasty match. Thank you. I'll be here all night. Um, (laughs) But... uh, they should bounce back. By the way, this is setting up horribly for Neymar because he's injured. He's going to miss this thing, but they're going to win it. So they're going to have four wins out of four in this group stage, and then he should be back for match day five when they're away to Real Madrid, which is a game there's a very good chance they lose, and the storyline there will be, hey, they were better off without Neymar. Yeah, exactly. Neymar. Right? I'm sure the soccer media will give Neymar the benefit of the doubt right. and analyze that very So he's very not going to get Wally pipped.
1: Neymar's not going to get Wally pipped?
2: There's yeah. nobody that's going to come in <laughs> and take his position? Um, But from an American point of view, uh, Chelsea host Ajax, which could be a duel of what we can now say definitively are U.S. international teammates, Christian Pulisic against Serginio Dest, and then you have Salzburg, Jesse Marshall, Wade, and Napoli. Your thoughts on those?
1: Well, I'm not going to go through the whole whole list, to be quite (laughs) honest. And as you mentioned, I think there will be real interest in seeing if Christian Pulisic's rise continues on, and if he's given an opportunity—first off, if he's given an opportunity. Secondly— with the news of Serginho Dest I think it's going to be fun to see because there were times that they were even coming up against each other and I think that Chelsea uh it's 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 in London right Correct okay yeah oh yeah that's right cuz they play yeah so I think Chelsea uh takes this without a problem I think Christian Pulisic do you think he starts I do think he starts You think he starts all right well if he if he starts I think not only does he start I think he plays well and continues to put money into that bank of credibility for him and for uh the way he is viewed by outside and internally from uh, frank lampard are you looking forward to
2: either or any of these uh matchups like i said dortmund inter is probably the best game right. of the bunch we'll end on this uh the united states this past weekend crashed out of the under 17 mm-hmm. world cup they went into their last group game against the netherlands Uh, needing a win to advance and promptly lost 4-0. And this has led to the sky is falling crowd Mm -hmm. again going on about how this is emblematic of larger problems with soccer in this country and the U.S. has no clue how to identify and develop players. U.S. players at all levels now lack grit and they've had the creativity coached out of them. You you know, you saw that on Twitter the last couple days. And then there's the Matt Doyle crowd that feels like these are 16-year-olds, like relax, this doesn't mean anything, Uh, which side of the coin are you on
1: okay so i always had a uh, i'm going to use this phrase it's probably not exactly what i want but i just can't think of a a better phrase but i always had a chip on my shoulder when it came to youth national teams because i was never involved in the young youth national teams The first time i played representing my country in that national team capacity uh, was what would have been considered the under 23 leading up to the olympic team so was right below the full national team and then I continued on to the national team there but I wasn't involved in the you know the 14s 15s 17s ni- you know 19s all all that kind of stuff and I will tell you this that while there were players like let's see how about a um, a Mike Burns who played all through all those young teams and continued all the way up and played in a world cup he was the exception and he was that anomaly when it came to Uh, players. Because what are you doing? You're seeing them play at a young age. In this case, it's like you said, 16-year-olds, and you're extrapolating it out. Oh, this is a great generation, or this is a great player, and stuff like that. So I don't put too much weight. As a matter of fact, I don't put any weight. We heard last week that I don't (laughs) necessarily even enjoy watching youth games and watching the unfinished product. it's, It's not interesting to me, and it's, at times, even frustrating to me. So I can't, in good conscience, look at this and say, this is horrible, and this is indicative of, of the problems that we have. Do I want the U.S. team, when they step out on the field, to win regardless of what age? Absolutely. And for the young men, you know, boys, if you will, that were playing for the United States and stepped out on the field, that there is criticism, that there is dismay and, once again, consternation in the U.S. soccer world that they didn't do anything, that's good. And I hope they hear it. I hope they understand that while they are developing and you have to have patience and understanding with 16 and 15 year old kids, they are still representing the country and there are expectations that are put on them. Right or wrong, those are the expectations. But I was not, you know, I I watched it, but I didn't. I didn't attach my hopes and dreams of the future of the men's team winning a World Cup to what they did.
2: Yeah, I mean, to the extent that there's anything negative about it, it's more in the intangible sense that it's so toxic right now around U.S. soccer, Mm -hmm. and anything that kind of perpetuates that is a bad thing. But from a footballing perspective, I agree with you. It's not that significant. It was their worst ever performance in an under-17 World Cup. They finished with one point from three games and a minus-seven goal difference. But keep in mind, in 2015, the U.S. also finished with one point from three games and a minus-five goal difference and that team featured Christian Pulisic and Tyler Adams. So you never know. Sometimes bad youth teams actually produce players sure. that that make an sure. impact at senior level, and ultimately that's what matters. The most famous example, which Tim Vickery always brings up, is in 2009, Brazil crashed out in the group stage of the Under-17 World Cup, played horribly, and that team had Neymar, Coutinho, and Casemiro, and, and, and by the way, two years later, Brazil, with a lot of the same players, won the under-20 World Cup. So you never know at what pace players are going to develop and how it's going to work out. Um, you know, a lot of people are jumping on Gio Reina now and saying he's overrated. Uh, listen, Borussia Dortmund know a little something about young players. All their coaches are gushing about him. They work with him every day. They're gushing about him. They, they, they think he's a real special talent. So for now, I'm going to go with that more than a couple of games at youth level where he might have underperformed. So that's where I land on that. But you're
1: right. It does play into all the fears and doubts uh, uh, and the the cynicism and the criticism, me- much of it fair. That you know, I mean, it's just it just shows that the tentacles and the impact of not making the men's World Cup in two thousand and eighteen. It still just permeates everything, and to a certain extent, infects everything in the way that we we view it. Like, I, and I'm not saying it sh- it shouldn't be looked at, and it shouldn't be something that. Um, that people care about, okay? I'm just saying I, I don't care about it. And it comes from a place of seeing how very few players that played at that age ultimately matriculated onto the full national team. And as a matter of fact, as you mentioned, the, the experience of going to a World Cup, and by the way, that it should be noted, they went to a World Cup. Not qualifying for a World Cup, that is bad, okay? At any level. But going to a World Cup, And having that group experience on and off the field, that is incredibly beneficial to players in terms of their development. And when you're looking at it from a national team, a full national team perspective, you want as many to have gone through those types of situations as possible. So I mentioned that I didn't play in any of the youth teams, but I did play in the under-23s. And a whole group of us, actually, a core of that team then went on and played in the World Cup in 1994. And we went through a whole qualifying process and then went through a whole Olympic experience together. And it served us well individually and collectively having that experience. So even though the results weren't there and that absolutely should be concerning to the people in charge, the experience was there. And it might, further on down the line, they might look back as great players or part of great teams and look back and say, yeah, we didn't get the goals and we sucked it up and we and we lost games. But that experience served us uh, served us well anything else mossy that is it all right that is it we come to the end of yet another pod and at the end of each and every pod as you know we do our one big thing and my one big thing is is playing off of something that you just mentioned um, and that is that this concept of grit and team spirit that we that we throw around so much and in in particular as it relates to the american player or the american team and it's kind of like the supreme court uh definition of obscenity in that you, you can't define it but you you know it when you see it and the the spirit and the grit that has informed and inhabited so many players and multiple generations of american teams that at times have done well at times haven't done well but has always been a constant when you think about even different players, whether it's a Clint Dempsey or a Landon Donovan or whether it's a Marcelo Balboa and a Tab Ramos, you know, those two players or those those two pairs of players are very, very different in the way that they play. And yet there was always a recognition that they will you know, you use whatever phrase run through a wall or whatever. And it's the concern out there in the American soccer public is that that quality and that characteristic is missing. And either it is, but but I can't sit here and tell you how to get it back. It was not found in any type of bottle. It was not a coaching course that taught it. It was not a training session that was able to instill it. You either have it or you don't. And maybe to a certain extent in our our desire to create better soccer players, and without sounding too grumpy old mandish, in giving these young players so much more when it comes to resources and attention and whether it's playing fields or whether it's equipment, whether it's coaching, whether it's opportunities, whether it's money, whether it's all of those different things. Have we done ourselves a disservice and taken away the fundamental characteristic that has led to so much success in our pursuit of evolving, in our pursuit of being something more? Have we lost what has ultimately made us successful in the past and something that at least I feel should never be lost. Maybe or maybe not. Or maybe it's just a generational thing and that we're just not seeing it right now. Or maybe we are just equating it with loss. We lose a game, therefore we don't have grit. I, I don't know, but I hear that on a consistent basis that these teams don't have the same grit. They don't have the same spirit. They, they are soft in essence. And I know at times I have accused these teams of being soft. And yet it's difficult for me to define what that means. But I do know it when I see it. And we are not seeing it enough when it comes to the players that are putting on that jersey and putting their hand over their heart and representing what I feel is the greatest country in the world and the teams. and. If we've lost it, that's a problem. And if we can't get it back, that is a problem. Because no matter how good we are at trapping and kicking and heading and shooting and passing the ball, if we don't have that fundamental characteristic, I think that we are going to continue to struggle. And that would be not only problematic, but it would be sad. Because I don't think we need to throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater in order to get better. We can still be at our core and still have that type of grit and spirit and still be better soccer players, better soccer teams at a better soccer playing nation. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, As we always say, please subscribe and rate and review and comment. Use that hashtag Alexi out there on all the uh, media platforms. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all the different things out there. There's probably some new ones that have just cropped up that I don't know about, but we are on them. Spotify Spotify and Apple Music and uh, Stitcher and all the different things out there. I know I'm missing some, and please don't yell at me if I didn't mention uh, your name or your company out there. We will see you again next week. Uh, As always, thank you so much for tuning in, and as always, size the day.